0: All right, if you will take your Bibles out, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. Hebrews chapter six, we come again to the passage where we have been for a while and will be for a while yet. Hebrews chapter six, if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word, we'll begin reading again at verse four, again, focusing our attention on verse seven. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your word. We pray that you would plant its truth in us, that you would give us clarity of understanding, clarity of thought, clarity of purpose, that you would show us the places in our lives, God, where your word needs to strike home and then let it strike. Father, let your word fall upon us like the hammer of heaven and break our sin away. God, I just pray that anything that's right and true would be planted deep in us. Anything that's false, anything that I get wrong, I pray that you would let it die on this floor, Father. Just let it fall away. I pray for your unction to be upon me, God, that you would hide me behind Christ. Hide me behind your word. And that you would let your truth prevail. God, we are always seeking to understand and to honor you. So help us to do that, Lord. Take this poor offering and turn it into something good for your people. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a news flash. God does not need us. It's a fact that either frustrates or comforts. It either helps us in our labors or makes us throw our hands up in despair and say, what's the point in doing anything? The truth is evident from Scripture and it's self-evident as we see how little our time and efforts on the earth actually are. And yet God calls us to join Him in His work. He demands that we follow and that we obey. And still, we know from Scripture that He does not need us. So it begs the question, Why, in the world, do we do the things that he tells us to do? Why does God demand fruit when our fruit cannot fulfill his righteousness in any meaningful way? Or can it? This morning we're going to think together about our fruit and exactly what's accomplished when God's people are faithful to obey and to live out the nature of Christ which has been implanted in our souls. So, the writer of Hebrews says that The fruit that comes out of the good ground is useful to those who cultivate it. And so that's what kind of sparked this idea, this question. How in the world, if we know that God doesn't need us, how is it that our work, our labor, our fruit is useful to him? It's a fair question. Because he doesn't need us. He will do what he's going to do with or without us. Jesus told the Pharisees when they told, his, he told, his, told Jesus to tell his disciples to stop praising him, to stop saying Hosanna, to stop calling him Messiah. And Jesus said to them what? I tell you the truth, if they're quiet, the very stones themselves will cry out. God doesn't need us. He didn't need them. And yet God invites us to participate with him. So I want to think through this with you. So the first thing that I, I want to point out is that the care that God gives to us demands fruit. Okay? God has a right to demand to expect a good return on His gracious providence. He has poured into His people much mercy. He has poured into His people much goodness. You, you could pause for just one second and I'm sure that you could fill a piece of paper Top to bottom, front to back, with the smallest writing possible, and still have a whole lot of things to say if you would give it thought and consider all of the good things that God has given you, even in this week. It's one of the reasons why we we try in our service to always have an opportunity for people to bring praise to the Lord for the good things that He has done. We want to brag on God, but more than bragging on God, I want to spark in you a heart of gratitude. I want to spark in you a heart of thankfulness. I want to spark in you a reflection on the the mercy that is so abundantly poured out on you. But here's something to consider. Whether you recognize it or not, God is pouring out that goodness upon you all the time, and that goodness that He is pouring out on you, the providence of care that He makes to make sure that you have all that you need to to do what He has in front of you, that obligates you to bear fruit. You do not have the option to say to God, well, I'm I'm not going to do anything for you. You've never done anything for me. You recognize there's nobody on the earth that can say that. Least of all those who belong to him. Because if you belong to God, that means that Christ died for you. It means that his death was accounted for your sin. That incurs to you an obligation. That incurs to you an obligation of obedience. It incurs to you an obligation of love. It incurs to you an obligation of of honor and devotion. And it incurs to you an obligation of fruitfulness for his purpose and for his sake. And that obligation is never ended until your life is ended. And even then, when you pass into eternity, you have the obligation of praise and worship of the God that you can finally see in fullness. This is not a purchase. You don't, you're not buying God's favor. But you are acknowledging that you have been given something of profoundly magnificent worth. And it should incur this gratitude. It should evoke in you a sense in which you recognize that you owe God your gratitude. You owe Him everything that you have. But you also owe Him the fruit of this life. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your God with your body, which is his. He owns you. It means that he gets to decide who and what and how you will be. And part of this is about the fruit. And I'm not talking about merely outward fruit. Not, not just designed to make life here a little easier. You wouldn't have to think long to think about people in the public eye who use the name of Christ to advance themselves with one group or another. A particular voting block. Politicians play this game all the time. They'll invoke, oh God bless America, when their lives are the most godless thing imaginable. They do this outward profession of Jesus, some casual attachment to the name, so that they can woo people who might actually love God. If if that's your bag, if your obligation to God is merely an outward obedience so that you can get along with the world around you, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to be enough to to honor the God who owns you. God is not merely concerned with your outward appearance of holiness. God called you to make you actually be holy. He called you that your life would be marked out as His. He died for you to be holy, to make men humble, to make them self-denying, to make them righteous, to make them useful, to make them upright, to make them pure in heart, pure in life, abounding in good works. In other words, He died to make men be like Christ in every possible way. And there is a, there is a casualness with which we treat with our own personal holiness that God is not pleased with. He calls us to recognize that holiness should always be the goal. Now, I recognize that we're all going to get this wrong and that all of us will be engaged in things that we probably shouldn't be. And there is not a man or a woman here who who I would expect to be perfect because it's not possible. John tells us in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar because we all have sin. But there should be a a real tension in us, a real hatred in us for our sin. We should not be okay with our sin. We should always be striving to be away from it, to be free of it. Because in the end, God has died to make us holy. Now, if these things are not produced, then the labor and care that God has lavished upon us and poured into us means what? If a man says, Well, I honor Christ, I follow Christ, and I obey him, but his whole life is completely void of any evidence of loving, honoring, or obeying Christ, what does the care and love that God has poured into that man mean in the end? Well, we'll get to it in a few weeks, but what the writer of Hebrews says is it's proving out that it is he's only good to be destroyed. Because either you bear fruit or you don't. And the ones that bear no fruit whatsoever are fit only to be cut down and thrown into the fire. There is is a reality here wherein God says, I have made you for holiness. I have made you for fruitfulness. And I have the right to demand fruitfulness from you. It means that whenever we are under the work of the gospel, we need to be actively participating to take every advantage we can from it. It means that whenever the gospel is being proclaimed to you, whether by your own reading, by a sermon, by a Bible study, by, a, by some other means, whenever God is at work speaking to you, you have an obligation to be taking it in and asking yourself this question. God, what is it in me that you want to change by this truth? Because there is always something that needs to be transformed. There is always room for righteousness to be made manifest. And if you're going to be faithfully pressing after Christ you need to be very okay with the challenges that are going to be a constant part of the Christian life. God is always going to be pressing on the places where your life is not stacking up. And not because He hates you, but because He loves you. Because He wants to shape you into the likeness of Christ. And so He is always coming to bear. And if you can hold those two things very carefully and with much conscious thought, to understand that God's love for you never... never flags, it never wavers, it never fails. His love is a sure and constant thing. And how do you know this? Well, Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Okay, Jesus has already come, He has already laid down His life to buy a people for Himself. And if Jesus has come to do that, you have no reason to doubt God's love for you. You have no reason whatsoever to believe that God would ever not love you if He has called you out unto Himself. So you can hold on to that truth with everything you have in you, but on the other hand, you need to recognize the truth that God loves you enough to say, I'm not happy with that thing. And we're going to fix it. We're going to bring pressure to bear on that part. And we're going to continue to work on it. And I'm going to continue to pour myself into you and continue to not allow you to be comfortable with your sin because you ought not to be comfortable with your sin. Amen? Amen. That's the process that we need to be striving after. And in the midst of all of it, we need to be consciously, actively asking ourselves the question, God, what is it that you want to change in me today by these things that you're doing? Whether you're listening to something, whether you're reading something, or whether it's just the Spirit of God coming over you and saying, I love you, but I'm unhappy about that thing. Now really quickly, let me just address the difference between condemnation and conviction. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You say, well, I feel pretty condemned right now. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Condemnation says this. You're icky. God hates you. There's nothing good at all about you whatsoever. You're you're worthless. Go away. That's condemnation. Conviction is, is the rapier point of the Spirit of God wherein he says that thing is sin. Stop it. Conviction is very specific. Conviction is very clear. Conviction is very on point. So when, when that little voice inside your head says, I'm such a sinner, God hates me, that's condemnation. Conviction says, God loves you, that thing is sin, stop it. You recognize the difference? We need to know these things. We need to understand these things because God is always going to be pressing to produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And that fruit is very specific. He has very specific things in mind. God's Spirit is not going to come to bear on you to make you a magnificent singer so that the whole world can fawn over you. That might be something He does to use somebody, but that's not the fruit of righteousness. Okay, He's not going to give you a brain the size of a planet so that you can wow the scientific community by your insights into the things of the universe. He might do that for somebody in order to use them, but that's not the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is very specific. The fruit that God is seeking for, very first of all, is your conversion. The thing that God is doing first and foremost is to make live men out of dead men. God is in the business of raising the dead. He always has been. Ephesians 2 tells us that you were dead in trespasses and sins, and if you're dead, you have a problem. Dead men can't do anything. I've worked for the funeral home for a long time, and all a dead man does is lay there and generally stink the place up. They can't do anything. Until God makes you alive you have no power to seek Him. Until God makes you alive, you have no power whatsoever to do anything. But God will raise the dead, and when He does, the very first words of a living heart are, God, please forgive me. We see our sin, and we repent. The very first thing that God is doing is seeking to convert sinners, to raise the dead, to make living men. Romans 15, 16 says, Paul is doing everything that he's doing. He says that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ unto the Gentiles. Ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul understood that his purpose as a minister was to proclaim the gospel to the lost Gentile world so that they too would bring an offering and fruit to lay before the feet of Jesus Christ. That was the calling. And that's the very first fruit that God is looking for. And so a person can do all kinds of great things. They can be magnificently spectacular in the eyes of the world. They can approach the the greatest questions of life. They can be the greatest caregiver the world has ever known. They can pour themselves out to make sure that, that nobody is hungry and everybody has clean water and all the other great things that these organizations do. And if that's all they're doing, they will be the nicest person in hell. Because those things don't change anything in a person's nature. What changes our nature is conversion. What changes our nature is the Spirit of God calling dead men to life, pouring into us life that we did not possess. And when that happens, the first fruit is that we are now alive. He is also looking for the fruit of true holiness, which is defined in Scripture as the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. That's quite the list. Anybody feel like they've got those down? (laughs) No. But if you're alive, I promise you, if you look deep in your heart, you will see that God is at work producing those things in you. Sometimes the process by which he produces those things in you is painful. I mean, we all heard the old adage, whatever you do, don't pray for patience. It's actually the wrong approach. Because you will never have patience until God gives it to you. Go ahead and ask, but be aware that patience is cultivated by waiting. Patience is cultivated by resting in the Lord and not necessarily having the thing that you think you want. Sometimes God goes about showing you that you don't need the thing that you thought you wanted. Sometimes he shows you that the thing that you have longed for the longest is the most precious when it comes. Beloved, the ability to have the fruit of the Spirit is going to be produced in you as a trial by fire. The Spirit of God dwells in you and he gives you the the basic fruit of these things. But these things have to be grown, they have to be nurtured, they have to be produced. And so the Spirit of God is always at work in you, making this fruit come to life. If you belong to God, this is a true statement. And you're not going to have all of them all at once, and you're not going to have all of them in the same measure, and honestly, you're not going to have all of them all the time at the same level. It's a waxing and waning kind of thing. And often we look at our lives and we say, well, I don't see anything of God in me. I don't see any fruit of the Spirit. So at that point, if you're feeling that way, ask yourself again, conviction or condemnation, and then ask people in your life around you. Ask people that you trust. Is there anything of these things in me? Because you don't see yourself clearly. It's, it's a difficulty that we all have as humans. We tend to focus on the wrong things. We tend to to see ourselves with, with cloudy perception. So God is at work producing the fruit of the Spirit in you. And He's also at work producing the outward testimony of true heart transformation, which could be defined as charity, as obedience to God's righteous commandments. This is the outward work. So as God, first of all, makes you alive and then begins to produce His Spirit in you so that you grow in grace and you start to think like God, you start to act like God as well. Because out of the heart proceeds the things of the life. So notice this though, if you try to do this backwards and just look at somebody and say, well that person's a Christian and so I'm going to act just like them, it's not going to work out for you because God is not going to honor the one who tries to work for his grace. What God honors is the one who works out of his grace, who works because of the grace that has been given to him. The one who digs in and says, Lord, please, I want to honor you. I want to be grateful. I want to live the things that you've planted in me. That's what God honors. So the works grow out of salvation. They don't produce salvation. Second Corinthians 9.10 says this, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. And Philippians 1.11 says, Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, to the glory and the praise of God. So that the righteousness that God plants in us produces the glory and the praise that God deserves. As God causes our lives to be more and more conformed unto His image, God continues to be glorified as that takes place. Now, As we labor through this and as we consider the things that God wants to produce in us, all the while recognizing that God doesn't need us, there is this remarkable response from God as the things that He is producing in us. I want you to track with this very carefully. God is producing. He's doing the work. He is growing you in grace. He is providing both the seed and the power of growth. It all comes from Him. And so there is this remarkable response whereby God, who is doing all the work in you, then turns around and graciously accepts from you that thing that you have messed up with your own sin in the process of his labor. And he gives you honor and, and praise and glory for the thing that you had nothing to do with, but that he did all of it. He graciously accepts our imperfect offerings. God does not need our fruit to declare His glory. It's all His anyway. So He can receive it from us with gratitude and and, and with honor for us. Listen to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 34. Paul says this. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Who is first given to him that it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. So if of him and through him and to him are all things, what in the world do we bring to the table? Nothing. right? All we bring to the table is us. And we say, God, here I am. And God says, yeah, I know. I put you there. And yet, he grows grace and fruit and righteousness in us. And then he turns around and praises us and and accepts from us the things that we offer to him. He does it because he is the source of all things. So he doesn't need these things. right? He doesn't need us to, to bring these things so that he is somehow complete. Think about it like this. If I'm trying to build something, and um well, I am, I'm often trying to build something. so so suppose that i'm 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 drywalling and I'm putting mud in Isabel's house, which I actually happen to be doing right now. And I'm supposed to go to Topeka and I'm supposed to get drywall mud, which I actually forgot to do Friday night. and i so I'll, I'll pick up more this week. but I, I have some drywall mud at my house that was reserved for another job. And so I send my son home to get the drywall mud, and I say, Lester, please go get me four boxes of drywall mud, which actually happened yesterday. Now, if Lester came back, and he says, "Hey, oh, Dad, you looked really hot. Here's a drink. And I say, thank you so much. Let's get the mud out of the truck. And he goes, oh, I forgot the mud. It didn't happen. Don't worry. He brought the mud. <laughs> but if, if that were to happen, would I be happy with him or unhappy? unhappy why because I needed the mud make sense but if I didn't need the mud okay that's not exactly what we said I'd probably address his attentiveness and and make him wear a little tablet around his neck or something so he doesn't forget what I want him to do but I wouldn't be angry over his imperfection because my anger is connected to my need does that make sense God doesn't need our works of righteousness. So when you bring to him your imperfect offering, and I promise you it will be, he's not going to be angry with you about your imperfect offering. He will correct it, and he will refine you through the process. But he will never reject you because what you bring him is not enough. Because he doesn't need what you're bringing him. Do you understand how how significant it is that our God is that much? It's one of the reasons why, why the pressure that's on my heart as a pastor all the time is to make more of God and more of God and more of God, and I fight with everything that's in me against any inclination of man to make less of God or to steal from God's glory or to take anything that belongs to God for us. It's it's the worst possible thing that we can do for our own security, for our own comfort, for our own peace, and for our own righteousness. Because if I believe that God needs what I'm bringing Him, and therefore my imperfect offering will be not accepted, what is the response of most people? Well, I'm just not going to do anything then. I can't please that God. So, I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to hide in my hole and I'm going to be quiet and I'm not going to have anything to do with it because I don't want to anger him any more than he already is. See, when you recognize that God is exactly who he says he is, that he is sovereign over all things and complete and sufficient without anything from us. Did God create because he was lonely? You'll hear that a lot, but it's not true. You'll hear a lot of people say that that God just... Heaven's not right without you, so Jesus came and died so that you could be there because He'd be sad without you. It's garbage. Jesus came and died because He had chosen a people for Himself that He was determined to save, to offer unto God a love offering of His own making. Jesus died for His people. And he, He allows us to know Him, which is great mercy and magnificent grace. But when you understand that, it gives you confidence to know that you can approach God with your broken things and know that he will never throw you away because of them. He will never reject your imperfect offerings because he doesn't need your offerings. In the Old Testament, we read this morning, just out of Leviticus 22, we read about God telling the people of Israel all the things they were not allowed to bring and how the priests were not allowed to approach Him in a certain way lest they die for their sin. You understand that all of that has been removed when the veil was torn in two. The purpose of the Old Testament was to show us how far we were from God and how much we need Him. That's still important for us to know. But the rest of the story is God breached it. And God made a way in the person of Jesus Christ and by the death of the Lamb. And He allows us into His presence, not because He needs us, but because we need Him. That's the rest of the story. And that's the part we need to make sure we get communicated. Because in the midst of all of these things, it is God who is all. And our offerings are imperfect and they always will be. And our righteousness is unrighteous and it always will be. Our offerings are not adequate as if we could, de- de- as if we could satisfy the demands of His real righteousness. What does the scripture say our best good really is? Filthy rags. Understand that. Recognize the fact That God's calling you to come to Him with your offerings of love are for your good and not His. They're for your benefit. He doesn't need them. He desires them for your sake. He desires them that your life might be more than it is, that it might be better. And even though God graciously accepts our offerings and even praises us for bringing them and gives us good things, Recognize that your offerings do not ever deserve a reward from Him. Under any circumstances, regardless of what they might be. Whatever God calls you to lay down. Whatever God calls you to give up. Whatever God calls you to relinquish. You do it, and it does not deserve a reward. Now God is gracious, and He will often reward His children for their faithfulness. But you must drive from your mind any thought that it deserves it. Because if you want to get into the game of, well, God, I gave this up for you, I have one word that will put an end to it. Jesus. What did God give up for you? What did God give for your soul? You see, all of our pretensions about what we think we deserve from God die in the face of understanding what God has done and who Christ really is. It's important for us to understand this because it shapes the whole conversation. It shapes the argument in our mind. It shapes the way that we approach what God is doing in our lives. It shapes us into a people who long to be pleasing in His sight because He deserves a people who are pleasing in His sight. It shapes our motive for evangelism. My motive for evangelism is not primarily a love for mankind. My motive for evangelism is not even primarily a love for individuals, although I do love mankind and I do love individuals. My motive for evangelism is primarily a love for Jesus Christ because He deserves to be honored and praised by everyone. My heart's cry is that the Lamb who was slain would receive the full reward of His suffering, that Jesus would receive everything that He purchased by His blood. That's why I evangelize. I evangelize because Jesus deserves to be loved and honored and praised. And there is no reason to evangelize except for that which will hold up. You see, if my motive for evangelism is that I love people, what happens when people aren't lovely? Which is pretty much all the time. Am I going to love somebody who's screaming in my face about their right to murder their baby? No, no, I'm not. It's just the right answer. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, because it's not a lovely thing. And yet we see more and more of that kind of, of acidic hostility from, from the people in both sides of the argument. People screaming and yelling and being hateful and ugly about their right to have their sin and do what they want to do. It's hard to love those people. But if my motive for evangelism is that that person just might be somebody for whom Christ died, and Christ deserves better from them than what they're giving, then it cuts through all the garbage. And it cuts through all the stuff that's being poured out, and it says, look, here's the truth of the matter Jesus Christ died for sinners, and you are a sinner. And if you will repent of your sin and turn unto Him, you will be forgiven and find life. That's the heart. And everything that we do grows out of our relationship with God because everything that we do comes from Him. And it returns unto Him. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 11. We already read it. For of Him and to Him and through Him are all things. It's all about Jesus. And He becomes our motive for everything that we do, because in the end, it is only through Him. Jesus makes our persons accepted to God through faith in Him. It praises His glorious grace. Ephesians 1.6 says that we are set apart to the praise of His glorious grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Jesus deserves our heart's affection. He deserves to be loved by us because He bears our iniquity. And He takes it away so that God sees our lives. So that God sees our hearts. So that God sees our works through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers and cleanses us. Jesus is the one who takes our sin and separates it from us. When we see in in Leviticus 16 the Day of Atonement and the two goats that come in, one was the goat that was killed and one was the goat that was driven away, both of them are satisfied in Christ. Christ is the one who bore our sins outside the city and Christ is still the one who died for our atonement. He is both the scapegoat and the goat of sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God removes from you the birthright of your first father, father, Adam, and gives to you instead the birthright of his own son, Jesus Christ. And he adds to that the beauty of his own personal mediation. Now turn with me to John chapter 17. I want you to see some things in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17. This is the true Lord's Prayer. Um, What we call the Lord's Prayer is really the model prayer. The Our Father who art in heaven is just the model. Jesus told us how we should pray. Why is it that Jesus could never have prayed that prayer for himself? Because he says, forgive us our sins. And he didn't have any to forgive. It wasn't his prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. The high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Now, I'm going to start at verse 6. Now, I just want to show you kind of the flavor of what Jesus' heart is for his people. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things you have given me are from you for I have given to them the words which you have given me that they and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me I pray for them but I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me so there's a distinction here Jesus is praying for us he's praying for his disciples he's not praying for the world he's praying for those that are his own I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours and all are mine all mine are yours And all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I came to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name, those that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me I have kept, and lost none of them except the son of perdition, that Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. And I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. Specifically, Jesus is praying for you right here. I do not pray for them alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory for which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared it to them your name and will declare it. That love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, what is it that Jesus is praying? He's praying that you will grow to know God, that you will be kept for His glory, that you will be sanctified by His truth, that you will stand firm against the hatred of the world, that you will be protected and guarded even in the midst of all of the hostility and the attacks that are going on around you, that Christ may be your sufficiency, but over and through all of that, what is He asking over and over and over again? That we might know the oneness that Jesus Christ Himself knows with the Father. When we talk about the Trinity, we talk about the person of God, the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the mysteries of the Christian faith, the hardest thing in the world for anybody to get their head around is the idea of the Trinity. And I, I've got this great cop-out answer. Feel free to use it. If somebody questions you about the Trinity, just remind them that a God that you could fully understand is no God at all. That there is room for mystery. There must be mystery. But part of the mystery is the unity that exists between them even while they are distinct and separate. One God, three persons. Can't get our heads around it. But that exact unity is what Jesus prays we will have with the Father because of him. What is it that God is calling us into? Why is our fruit so important? Because we need Him. That's right. We need Him. We need to be where He is. And in the end, everything that we are comes down to this. Apart from God, we are condemned. In God, we are alive. And God is calling us to produce fruit so that we are more and more made like unto Him. Because without Him, we have no hope. Without Jesus Christ, there is nothing in this life He adds to this the beauty of His own mediation, and He adds to this the reality that there is nothing apart from Him which can unite us unto God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There is no other person who can stand in the gap for you. It is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. It is not the saints It is not Mary, it is not a priest, it is not a pastor, it is not anybody. It is only Jesus, and it is only through His mediatorial work that we have access to God. But through His work, hear this, you have access to God. If you are found in Christ, when you speak to pray, God listens. God hears you. And Jesus said, you know that if he hears you, he will give you what you need. God will never fail to provide the fullness of what his children require. He will never fail to give us the very best things that he has. Because in the end, God himself glorifies himself in our works. The outward will of God, the working, the the revealed will of God is honored when God is glorified as we obey. That, That model prayer I mentioned, you know, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this, we acknowledge that God's will is supreme and we want to see his will being worked out on the earth. We want to see him being honored as people obey. But the very first heart that needs to be submitted to that truth is ours. We have to look at the reality of our heart and our lives and say, God, where am I not submitting to your authority? Where am I not bending my knee to your kingdom? Please, God, let your kingdom have its work in me. Make me righteous. Show me my sin. Cause me to turn unto you and to turn away from the things that bring you sorrow. We demonstrate the nature and the power and and the efficacy of God's grace as we walk in truth. Look, apart from Christ, your life does nothing but dishonor God. Ezekiel 36:20 says this. They came to the nations and wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. And the nations said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his hand. That's us. When we walk in disobedience apart from His righteousness, all we do is profane Him. But when we obey God from the passion of our hearts, we demonstrate that God has transformed a rebel heart. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. If you have any desire to serve God, where did that desire come from? From God. If you have any desire to cry out to Him for mercy and repentance, where did that desire come from? From God. If there is anything in you that is praiseworthy, if there is anything in you that is good, if there is anything in you that is of good report, where did it come from? It came from God. It is His merciful gift to His children. He is then honored when that gift is manifested. Ephesians 3 tells us that God is doing everything that He's done so that He displays in the church His manifold wisdom as Christ is formed in us. He displays it through the church to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. All those who have been mocking God's plan since the fall of man are silenced when righteousness prevails in the lives of His people. And here's the good news. If you belong to Christ, though you may not see it clearly, righteousness is prevailing in you. God is at work forming Christ in every single one who belongs to Him. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And all of this expresses the power and the mediation of Christ. It expresses His love. It expresses His faithfulness. We declare the praises of Him who called us. We declare the excellence of the things that are taught to us and the one who taught them to us. We demonstrate the power of God's blood, of Jesus' blood and of His intercession. And in the end, nothing but that blood can ever overcome our natural tendency to sin and rebellion. It is only in Christ That any good things come, and as we live them out, Christ is glorified and honored, not as if he needs it, but because he deserves it. God extends his love and his care to others also through our fruit. They see the works, and we remind them the things that we do, they're of God alone. And God demonstrates the reason why these things are done as we do them in love. We see and praise God for the things that He allows us to do. And in the end, they are like a kind of firstfruits unto God. James 1.18 says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Do you understand that the church is the promise of redemption from the fall? You say, well, that's kind of a strange thing, because we're, we're the ones who are being redeemed. Who are we being promised to? Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 20. Paul writes this. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What does that just tell us? Creation longs to be delivered from the bondage that we subjected it to. That we continue to subject it to. If you think that the earth does not cry out against the murder of 65 million babies, you don't understand anything. You can look at the terrible things that are going on in the world. Everybody wants to talk about climate change. It's a judgment from God. God. The earth is crying out against us and it will no longer bear up under this onslaught of murdered babies. It will no longer bear up under the onslaught of all of the other things that our nation says are just fine and we should celebrate them for months on end. None of those things are pleasing in the sight of God. But as the church stands in righteousness and as the church obeys God and does what God tells it to do, we are the first fruit of promise and the earth looks at us and goes, oh, thank you, Lord. I know you keep your promises if I can personify the earth. (laughs) Do you understand that we alone have not been subjected to this, but everything has been. And as we walk in righteousness, there is the guarantee being made manifest to not only mankind and not only the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places, but also under the earth itself. God remembers His promises. He will always keep His word. Your fruit is important because you are a part of that promise-keeping cycle. And in the end, remember that God delights in your fruit. I know it's bizarre to consider because He's the cause of it, remember? And yet He delights in it. Whether there's any real fruit, no matter how small, no matter how preliminary, God delights in that fruit. He is pleased to accept it and pleased to reward the fruit that He caused us to bear. Because God is always pleased to honor His children's work. It doesn't matter whether you think it is significant. It doesn't matter whether you think it is important. There is nothing so small that God does not see and bless it. Nothing shall ever be lost that is done out of love for God. Not even the offering of a cup of water. Mark 9.41 says, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, if you have a hard time with this, a hard time understanding that God is always pleased to receive even your your puniest offering, I understand that, because that's human nature. We look at it, and we look at our stuff, and we look at God, and we say, there's no way this could be pleasing. But I want to challenge you, and I want to invite you, and I want to warn you, honestly, to not reject the truth of Scripture, To understand that if you set yourself to say, you know what, I don't care what you say, there's no way God could be honored by this. It doesn't mean anything. What you're doing is calling God a liar. What you're doing is setting yourself against His truth. And that's something that God will not allow to stand in you. He will correct it. And that process might be painful. So let me give you the warning with all the love I have in me. Take what the Scripture says. And believe it with everything you have in you. Understand that God always keeps his promises. Because in the end, his gracious response towards his children is to receive them and their works as if they were actually praiseworthy. It's grace. It's mercy. It's glory. It's truth. It's power. It is this beautiful, delightful, wondrous response from a God who is worthy of praise. And it excludes all works of righteousness. In the end, what it means is that the person who says, you know what, I'm not going to take God at His word on this. Instead, I'm going to work really hard to be pleasing in God's sight so that God will like me. That person will receive nothing because they're rejecting the one course to God. It ends any pretense for man's righteousness to be acceptable in the sight of God. The only things that's acceptable is that righteousness which has been implanted in us and the working that God does through that in us. The flavor of the Old Covenant says this, God does not judge His children harshly with an expectation towards, covenant, towards judgment. The flavor of the New Covenant is this, God says, I love you. And I have set my love upon you. And I am determined that you know my love. The old covenant could not take away sin. The new covenant not only takes away the punishment of hell, but it takes away sin itself. The old covenant could not be pleased with the imperfect obedience. The old covenant could not be satisfied with an imperfect offering. We read that this morning. But the new covenant says God will always accept what we bring to him. Because it is born in a heart that loves him. The work of Jesus Christ demands that God is pleased with our work. Because he has taken away our evil. And he has paid for our iniquity. Now think about this truth as we consider your works. What is it that taints your works? It's your sin. You obey God imperfectly because of your sin. Has Jesus Christ fully paid for and separated you from your iniquity? Amen? Is that a true thing? If it's a true thing, then that is the fullness of how God sees you is cleansed from your iniquity. God will still correct your wrong, and He will still correct His children. But He will never reject your offerings. He will never reject your works of righteousness that you bring before Him born out of Christ. Because the taint of sin does not touch them any more than it touches you they have been cleansed by the same blood that cleanses you. Do you understand that Jesus Christ's own blood demands that God receives these things. He has blessed our weakness and he has crowned our frailty with with glory. And this truth keeps us and it keeps God in our proper respective places in our minds. Okay? Okay? if you understand that everything you bring to God is sanctified because of what Jesus did instead of sanctified because you were so good, then automatically you recognize you're coming to Him as a supplicant. You're coming to Him asking for mercy even as you're bringing to Him the offerings of your obedience. And in doing that, it leaves you mentally and spiritually in the right perspective to understand who God is and who you are. One of the greatest dangers of a a works-driven righteousness, of of a man-centered idea of salvation, is that it blurs the lines between what God is and what man is. It makes us presume upon Him. It makes us presume upon our own abilities. And it makes us presume upon this idea that if we just work hard enough, we can get there. And when you do that, it diminishes God. God and it elevates man. When you do that, it makes less and less of him until finally he is no longer even recognizable as the God of the Bible. When we come to him with with this idea, it kills self-love. Okay. When you come to him recognizing that everything you have is filthy rags, but God is good enough, he's going to accept it anyway, it kills self-love. It is the most humbling thought. Immediately there, there is something in us, in almost every man I've ever spoken to, and most women too, that says, Well, if I don't if, if if it's not good enough, then I don't even want to think about offering it. That rises up in us, that desire to say, Well, no, I, I want God to accept me because I've done a good thing. Not really a good idea. Because you have to recognize all of your good things and all of your good works, they have to be seen in light of the the tremendous reality of your sin. So it it will kill self-love and it will put an end to that pride and arrogance. And it is the most humbling thing in the world to come to him knowing that you can only come because he is good, not because you are. You can only become because he is worthy, not you. And in the end, that makes us love and adore God's grace and condescension towards us and it makes us continually thankful to Christ for His mediation. Beloved, when you, when you wrestle out your fruit and how it is directly connected to the death of Christ, you have nothing but gratitude for everything you have. You have nothing but, but a precious God-honoring love for Him. And in the end, it allows us to have comfort in all of our duties and encouragement in them and hope from them as the things that we get wrong continue to show us the mercy and the grace of God. Because God will never reject the one who belongs to Christ. Under any circumstances, for any reason. If you belong to Christ, you will always be accepted by God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace to understand these things. And I pray, Lord, that as we approach you in regards to this question, that you would press on all of us a heart that says, Lord, thank you. God, transform us by your grace. Transform us for your glory. And let us see all that we do and all that we are with an eye to your righteousness. Let us see all that we do and all that we are with an eye steadfastly fixed upon your kingdom. And let us see all that we do and all that we are with a heart that is grateful for what you have made us. Apart from you, we are nothing. But in Christ, we are heirs. And for that, God, we thank you. Let it be true in our lives and let it be true in the lives of all that we come into contact with. That Christ will be honored. That his kingdom will be extended. And that the name of Jesus would be exalted in hearts where he is now hated. For he deserves it, God. And we long to see him receive the full reward of his suffering. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.